this past week, I experienced a, a very joyful moment. I was with my daughter, Morgan, and we had a long breakfast where we talked about her college graduation two weeks away and uh, her first full-time job. Uh, sometimes you hear that, you know, the certain moments are priceless. Well, this wasn't priceless. This, this felt like $15,000 a year of worth of joy in this moment. I was very aware of the price of this breakfast. It wasn't just, you know, $15. It was $15,000 that I didn't have to give away to the beloved University of North Carolina at Wilmington every year. But as we talked about her job, she has this part-time job that she's thinking is going to develop into a full-time job. This would be the, her first experience, so she wanted to ask her dad for some wisdom. And I told her that it was very important to have a very clear job description. So you know exactly what you're called to do. And it helps you so when you get into the workplace, you know what you're supposed to do. And it, and it eliminates confusion or at least reduces confusion. And then also you know what's expected. So when you get into the workplace, if you start being asked to do different things, you can quickly become disillusioned because you didn't really know what to expect. And so when we come to the end of chapter 1 in Colossians, there's, there's a shift in focus. I think you can see it. If you look back with me in chapter 1, verse 15, it's like a camera on a stage. And the, the first person we want to look at is Jesus. He is. This is the first focus of the camera. And we've talked about that for several weeks, about who Jesus is. And then the camera shifts, which we talked about last week, verse 21 of chapter 1, and you. So we started with Jesus, the camera was on Jesus, we learned about Jesus, and then the camera shift, and you, shifts to the people of Colossae, all humanity in some sense, and then a third shift in verse 24, now I. So we've got he is, Christ, and you, what are you like, and now we've got now I. Now Paul is focusing on himself, the shift happens to the Apostle Paul. And when you read through these verses, what Paul is providing, I think, is a very clear job description. I think he's given very specific expectations of what's required of those who want to get into the ministry of the gospel. You can see at the in verse 23, I became a minister so he's a minister of the gospel, and then this shift is taking place to let's look at the job description particularly. And Paul gives a very easily recognizable here in the text, a three-point job description for ministers. Three words easy to remember, suffer, serve, and struggle. So, so if you're interested in getting into the ministry, if you want to be in ministry, here's the three-point job description. It's very clear, very easy to see in the text. You're going to suffer, you're going to serve, and you're going to struggle. And so in some ways this morning, you're listening in on a sermon to me. I'm the primary target of the sermon. Paul's talking about his job description as a minister of the gospel. But I think there's a couple of ways you can listen for personal application. One, 
Broadly speaking, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to be involved at some level in some kind of ministry, some kind of service. So you can apply some of these principles to yourself. And secondly, and hopefully this won't be in the near term, but eventually I'll be replaced with somebody else who's going to lead the church, who's going to be the primary preacher. And most of you all will still be around. And some of you all will form some kind of committee that will interview this person. And I would say, here's the three questions you want to ask this person. This is the job description. Mr. Whoever, this is our expectation of you. Are you going to, are you willing to do these three things? Are you called to and willing to suffer? Are you called to and willing to serve? Are you called to and willing to struggle? That's what you would want to ask this person. You would want to get a clear understanding that that's your expectation of him. That's God's expectation of him. And if he's not willing to suffer or serve or struggle, then you haven't found the right person yet. So let's look at those in bullet points, this three-point job description, I will suffer. It's absolutely critical to have a good theology of suffering, a good understanding of suffering. It's, it's critical to have that locked down in your mind. Otherwise, when you meet Christ and you go out to serve and you suffer and you don't think suffering is going to be a part of it, you can quickly get disillusioned and then quit or walk away from your ministry. And so the first thing we want to see here is that you will suffer and you shouldn't be surprised. As a, as a minister of the gospel, in ministry, as many of you all are in, you will suffer and you shouldn't be surprised. Listen to Jesus' words to his own disciples. He's been with them probably for a year and a half, maybe two. And he's gathering them around and said, okay, guys, you've seen me. Now I'm going to send you out two by two. And I want to sort of give you an understanding of what you're going to face as you go out. You ready? Ready? Okay. They're all in the huddle. He's calling the play. Here's Jesus's play. Imagine you being in the huddle. Jesus is looking at you and said, I'm, I'm going to send you out. So I want to make sure you have a clear understanding of what you're going to face. And they all sort of crowd in. Matthew 10, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you. When they arrest you, do not worry. All men will hate you because of me. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. If the head of the house, Jesus, has been called the devil, how much more the members of his household? Do not be afraid of those who can kill, who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. I mean, what a charge. Hey, guys, you've seen me now. Now, let's huddle up and let me give you some very clear instructions. I don't want it to be foggy in any way. Here's what you can anticipate. Attacked, flogged, arrested, hated, persecuted, called the devil, and then eventually put to death. Who's ready? See, there shouldn't be any surprise that this is what we're called to do. Christ has himself told his disciples, this is what it's, 
what it's going to be like. And then listen to Peter's instructions to the early church, 1 Peter 4, 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the fiery trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. See, Peter's talking to this early church, and he knows they're going underneath this fiery trial. And he says, just don't be surprised. This is what we've been called to. Tim Keller has a great comment on this verse where he says this. Listen, grief and weeping in response to trials will never destroy you. Grief and weeping in response to trials will never destroy you, but surprise will. See, when you're under the trial, it's okay to to grieve, to wish you weren't under the trial. Jesus himself was that way in the garden. But if you're surprised, then that could destroy you. It could cause you to walk away and say, I didn't realize I was getting into the suffering thing. I thought when I came to Jesus, suffering was going to be eliminated. Instead, he's actually called me to suffering. So Jesus and Peter and Paul here, they all make it very clear. Suffering is part of the job description. And we shouldn't be surprised. Now, notice in the text here, this very strange statement made by Paul. In my flesh... Verse 24, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is a very strange verse. In my flesh, in Paul's flesh, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So they immediately won't ask this question. Does that mean that Christ's afflictions, Christ's crucifixion, Christ's sufferings somehow were not sufficient? I mean, he did a lot. But then something else had to be done. That's the question that's raised by this comment. And the answer is, no, we know that's not true. We know it from looking at chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself. He's reconciling all things, whether heaven on earth, by making peace by the blood of his cross. So we know he's definitely not saying that in chapter 2, verse 13. He basically says the same thing. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And, of course, we know one of the last cries on the cross by Jesus was, it is finished. That the debt has been paid. There's no need for us to pay anymore. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it that Paul is saying when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And they're here. Scholars have a lot of disagreement as to exactly what they mean. And I would agree with what Sam Storms says in his book that many of you are reading through the hope of glory. This is his comments. The afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense they are not yet seen or known or loved among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the word. Since Christ is no longer on earth, he wants his body or the church to reveal his suffering in its own suffering. The world hated and afflicted Jesus, but since he's not here, their arrows of persecution will strike his followers In our suffering, others will see him. At 
at this at the cross is the center of the Christian faith. And and it's through the cross, it's through the sufferings of Jesus that we're most closely connected to the mercy and grace of God. And then through our suffering, people are going to see Jesus. As Storm says, in our sufferings, others see him. Of course, one major problem with that is if you minister in a culture curved in on itself, if you minister in a culture that considers comfort its number one goal, then calling people to Jesus, who then Jesus will in turn call them to suffer, it's not going to be a popular message. I think people want to come to Jesus to avoid suffering. I'm looking for some help out of my suffering. I'm not looking for someone to help me to suffer. And so we have to be careful when we're preaching the gospel and we're asking people to come to Christ. What is exactly you're asking them to come to? Part of what you're asking them to come to is to be a minister, and that minister will be called to suffer. So if you're seriously thinking about Or for many of you, if you're seriously engaged in ministry, I want you to know your first bullet point of your job description is, I will suffer. And you shouldn't be surprised. Maybe this would be helpful for you in terms of how I deal with this. Here's how it typically works for me. I preach this sermon. I mean, I've been reading this all week. Thinking this just that Paul, this is a message to you. I mean, have you ever felt like I'm speaking to you? You think, how has he figured me out? He's just speaking just to me. Well, this is what I felt like. Now, you know, I felt this way. God, this is just you're speaking to me. I'm interested in speaking to other people. But this week you're just speaking to me. So, OK, I get it. I'm, I'm going to suffer. That's the first bullet point on Paul Phillips's job description. But I know it. And then I start suffering for some reason. And this is the very first thing that crosses my mind at that moment. Why is this happening to me? I mean, I'm preaching it to myself. I'm reading it. I'm acknowledging it. I'm passionately delivering it to you. And then when it happens to me, I go, what God, what's up? I mean, do you not see I'm suffering? Can you not move this along in some way? I get so surprised. And then at that moment, I have to do what I'm going to ask you to do. You have to preach to yourself. You have to stop your mind and say, okay, let's remember the truth. God is here. He's never going to leave me or forsake me. He's sovereignly in control of all things. He has called me to suffer. And whether I can see it or not, through my suffering, many people are going to see Jesus that they wouldn't see him if I wasn't suffering. Then preaching that message to myself then helps me then begin to move forward in a more positive direction. Second bullet point, I will serve, verse 25. The word here is minister. It's also, it can be translated the word serve. So I'm going to suffer, I'm going to serve. And then it's a very interesting verse here. Let's look at it in verse 25. Of which I became a minister 
And I've, be, I've become a minister according to the stewardship from God. I'm in my position of service according to God's stewardship. And the word stewardship here means it's a compound Greek word. It means ruler of the house. So I'm a servant according to the ruler of the house. God is the ruler of the house. And he's strategically taking me, Paul in this case, or me or you. And he's strategically saying, hey, I'm the ruler of all creation. And I'm strategically taking you, and because I'm God, because I'm the ruler of all creation, I'm going to strategically place you in history, somewhere along history's timeline. And then in that moment of history, I'm going to strategically place you somewhere on the globe at some particular time for some particular purpose. I don't know if they still play this board game, but have any of you heard this board game called Risk? You know this board game? It's it's a war game. And so the board itself is a map of the world. And so every every country sort of outlined in the beginning of the game as a player, you get so many soldiers, basically, and you get so many countries to defend. And because you're a player, you've got so many soldiers, you get to put you strategically get to place your little soldiers wherever you want to place them. God's looking at the map all across time, and he's to strategically decide to pick you up and say, I would like him or I would like her in this place, Wilmington, right now. You may wish you were born 100 years from now or 100 years ago. You may wish for all kinds of other things, but God is this master strategist. And he's saying, I see you, I see you, I see a situation, and I need you to serve right here, right here in your dorm room, right here in your classroom, right here in your neighborhood, right here in this community, right here in this church. I'm strategically placing you to be a servant. And the word here, servant, is a familiar word. It's the word where we get deacon, and it basically means to run an errand. You see what God's doing? I need somebody to run an errand. And Paul, I'm picking you up. And and all across history, I'm uniquely gifting you to be the pastor of a church in little old Wilmington, North Carolina, for however many years. I'm putting you like my little pawn right here. And you get to serve. You get to run my errands. You get to say whatever I'm saying. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's the delivery boy for what he says is the word of God. I've got to make the word of God fully known. Verse 25. That's my whole purpose. I'm the servant to make the word of God fully known. That is Paul Phillips's whole purpose to make the word of God fully known. I'm an ambassador. I'm a messenger. I'm a delivery man. I'm an errand boy for God. Which eliminates me from giving my own message. You really don't want to hear my message. You don't really need my words. You don't really need my opinion. Whether you know it or not, you're desperately dying to hear from God Almighty. And each week, my role is to be an errand boy, a messenger to deliver that word, exactly what 
the Apostle Paul is called to do. In the 1980s, the Secretary of State was a man named George Shultz. He served underneath then-President Ronald Reagan. And as the Secretary of State, he would send out the ambassadors from America across the globe. And they would come into his office and he would have kind of an interview. They'd have some questions, some, some dialogue. And as they were leaving, Schultz had the same little ritual for each newly minted ambassador. He had a globe in his office, a large globe, and he would just kind of spin it slowly. And he would ask the ambassador to put their finger on their country. And, of course, they wanted to make sure they did it, got it right where their country was. And they would all stop the globe with their finger and say, this is, this is my country. Until one man who had been a senator, a guy named Mike Mansfield, a friend of George Schultz's, came in. And they had the same little routine. And even though he was Schultz's old friend as they were leaving, Schultz spin the globe and said, well, Mike, tell me. Point out to me your country. And as the globe spun around, Mansfeld pointed his finger and it stopped on America. He said, this is my country. I may live in another country, but I'm here to deliver a message from my country to that country. That's exactly what I'm called to do. That's what exactly what you're called to do as a messenger. You're from another country. This place isn't your home. This isn't the place that you're putting permanent roots. You're getting a message from another country and you're called to say, I'm just representing that country. I'm just giving the information from God to this dark world. And Paul understood this role of a servant. He he's the delivery man. He understands it. And, you know, he understands it for several reasons. But primarily when he's about ready to leave, when his delivery time is done, He writes to the next guy. He's handing the baton off to Timothy. You know, Timothy, his protege. And in 2 Timothy, it's Paul's last letter. He's in prison. He's not going to make it out of prison alive. He's writing this one last letter to the next messenger in line. The next guy who's going to fill Paul's pulpit. And this is what he says to Timothy at the very end of the letter. Timothy, I want to remind you of this. All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I want you to have that locked down in your mind. Now, I'm going to give you this charge in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ. Preach the word. Preach. Be a herald. Be a messenger. Be a deliverer of the word. Be prepared in season and out of season with great patience and great care. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers that will just say what they want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth, but you keep your head. You endure hardship. You suffer. Fulfill the duties of your diakonos, your ministry, your service. So if you're seriously engaged in or seriously thinking about being involved in ministry, the first bullet point, you will suffer. The second one, you will serve. 
You're from another country and you're here just to deliver the gospel message to this place, wherever you're, you're strategically placed by God. Third bullet point. Verse 29, verse chapter 2, verse 1. I will struggle. Some, some have strive. The, the word here is labor or in the Greek agonize. I will, I'm, I'm gonna agonize. For this I toil. I, I struggle with all his energy. I, I want you to know how great a struggle I'm having for you. I'm in labor for you in this other town nearby, Laodicea. It's, it's the idea of, of Paul giving birth to these early churches and he's, he's in labor as he's giving birth to these early churches. I saw this very funny video. A couple of men had said to their wives, hey, I don't think the labor pain is really as bad as you think it is. So they agreed to a birth simulation. And the simulation was you hooked up electrodes to your abdomen that would contract your abdomen and it would contract it at sort of the pain threshold of uh, giving labor. And they also sort of, as they walked into this clinic with their wives, said, and also we think it's a myth that women have a higher pain threshold than men. And these two men, high-fiving each other, joking and stuff, come into the doctor's office. They get all hooked up. And they're laughing. And the wives are sort of bedside, just like the man is in the birthing room. You okay, honey? Holding your hand. Got you breathing down. Oh, we're fine. Hey, we're fine. They're on this doctor table squirming around. Oh, what what level was that? That must have been a seven. Uh, Sir, that was a four. Oh, no. And it just keeps going for two hours. Now, most labor is like 10 to 12 hours. So two hours. These guys are reading. One guy standing on the floor, hands on his knees. He can't help it. The two women high-fiving each other in the video. They are loving it. And, of course, they had to make these two guys had to make a confession at the end of the video. I think also proving that women are smarter than men. (laughs) Paul's describing labor pain. He's in labor. He's struggling. He's trying to produce these early churches. Colossians chapter 11. I have labored. I've toiled then listen to his, his description. It's somewhat reminiscent if you're a, 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 a new mom. I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. I, I'm daily facing the pressure of all the concerns for a church. That's just it's almost exactly what a young mom feels like. I'm feeling this struggle, this pressure. I'm going without all these things because I've got all my energy focused on you. I got all my labor towards your health. And sometimes I'm concerned that that young people who who don't know what to do or maybe they're not really um, geared to work very hard. Maybe they don't want to work very hard academically. Sometimes I hear, well, I can always do ministry. Like it's some kind of easy fallback position. And I want to reject that with the strongest possible language. 
The Apostle Paul is saying the person best prepared for ministry is a person who understands labor pains for their entire ministry. Not for two hours, not for 12 hours, but for 25 or 40 or 60 years. Somebody who's willing to suffer, somebody who's willing to be an errand boy, somebody who's willing to suffer, to go into labor. And then notice in verse 28, what kind of labor it is. It's for everyone. I'm trying to warn everyone. I'm trying to present everyone mature. I'm trying to teach everyone. See, I'm not just trying to teach a little niche group. I'm trying to teach young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, whoever would hear the gospel. I'm trying to bring those people into full maturity of God. That that's labor. To bring one person into full maturity of God. But everybody I come in contact with, my goal is to bring that person into full maturity. And of course, it can't just be done on your own energy. Verse 29. I'm laboring with God's energy. When I first interviewed for the Young Life staff, which was my first ministry position... I remember one of the guys in the interview, that was an interviewer said, Paul, can you do anything else? I mean, I don't know, probably. I mean, I have a college degree. I'm sure I can do something else. And he was trying to say, if you really can be satisfied doing anything else, then do something else first. And, of course, I mean, I'm 25. I'm too immature to understand what he's talking about, too self Absorbed to really get it, but I I get it now. Hudson Taylor, extraordinary missionary to China, said, An easygoing, non self denying life will never be one of power. An easygoing, non self denying life will never be one of power. Of course, it was also Hudson Taylor who brought many missionaries from Europe to China. And as they got ready to go, this is what he'd say, pack all your earthly belongings into a coffin. Ship it with you. They'll bury you in it. First of all, could you whittle down all your earthly belongings into your coffin? Secondly, when you decide, I'm going to move out from these four walls into a community a mile away. Into my business. Into my community. Into the world. Can you say, the only way I'm coming back is in a box. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to struggle because it's in that point that people see this point. Who's ready?